This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. My name is Simon Longstaff. I'm the co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and executive director of the Ethics Centre. And I'd like to welcome you all here this afternoon. Uh, today's session is how many dangerous ideas can one person have? And in a moment, I will welcome to the stage uh, this year's presenter of this particular session, which has been running for a number of years now, Andrew Bolt. Uh, before I do so, I'd like uh, personally to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I have uh, kinship ties of my own with people on Groot Island, Anandliakwa, and uh, would really like to pay my respects to any Indigenous people who might be present today and in general to those whose country we meet on. Uh, in terms of uh, just a few housekeeping things, uh, if you could please put your phone on silent. If you're tweeting, it's hash Fodi, F-O-D-I. Uh, Andrew and I will have a conversation uh, for about 35 minutes or so, and then we'll be throwing it open to questions, and there'll be an opportunity for you to come to one of um, two microphones which will be illuminated on the front on either side of the stage should you wish to to pose a question to Andrew in that period of time. So, to the main event. Uh, Andrew Bolt was born in Adelaide. He's one of what seems to be an extraordinary number of prominent people coming from South Australia, affecting our political lives at the moment. He once worked on a Labor Party election campaign. He's helped flower sellers from the Netherlands to sell their products, and he's worked in the arts in the State Opera of South Australia and is married with three children and, I'm told, two dogs. Um, those are things you've probably never heard about Andrew Bolt because he's become a very prominent figure within Australian uh, political life as the most popular commentator writing in papers like The, Australian, uh, sorry, the, the Telegraph, um, The Melbourne Sun. I, I think I've probably got the papers wrong here, but we all know many, many publications on Sky News, Macquarie Radio. He's also an author that's published a number of books taking his opinion pieces and collecting them together. Would you please join with me in welcoming to the stage for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, Andrew Bolt. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. <clears throat> I know I got the papers wrong, so you'll probably fix that up as we go through. Um, this session has had people like Michael Kirby speaking in the past, and so it's a, a really interesting people over the years who've talked about their dangerous ideas. But it is called How Many Dangerous Ideas Can One Person Have? I'm wondering, do you think of your distinctive ideas as being dangerous, or for you, they just a matter of common sense? Oh, they're dangerous to me, perhaps, but I'm not sure that they're dangerous to anyone else. I think uh, my career is more... Uh, the ideas that I, I, I deal with are ones that I think are dangerous that are proposed by other people. Uh, being a, from a more conservative point of view, I'm saying, wait a minute, before something terrible happens, let's have another look at these ideas. Um, but as I say, the danger that my ideas pose more probably to me than to anyone else. And, and can you just expand on that? Why do you think danger to you? Ah, well, the security that you've had to arrange for this event, for example. Yeah. <laughs> it's not to save them. <laughs> well, it might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so your, your own ideas, they're not just a response to a world. They're actually, in which case you see something you don't like it. There's a foundation on which they grow out of your own belief system. So I want to start with that. I will want to get... Yeah, but it's you, you, you actually point to really interesting challenge and uh, I don't think it's one that I've, I've adequately resolved myself. Um, it is, it is a, a fact that for conservatives you are far too often in the position where something's advancing towards you and you're saying stop and the conservative position is to be against and it's not really quite, that's not all that pleasant in a way. Um, and nor do, does it answer to a really deep human need to, be, to feel you're part of something that's advancing. Something positive, yeah. Something positive, you're against, which has got a negative, you know, against is not as nice a word as for. 
And I think it's one great challenge for conservatives to try to propose something positive, affirmative, um, and it gives people the idea that they're marching towards something rather than resisting something marching towards them. So um, that is that, that okay, is always so, a challenge. So let's try and unpack just at a starting point. And I will get into some of the specific things that um, you've stood for and argued about mm. as we go on. But to create a foundation, what is the positive component of the worldview that you try to bring to bear that may be expressed in the, oh, no, let's not go there, but what is the positive part? Well, um, I've always been... In, to the, from the point that I actually knew about it, um, I've always been in love with the idea of the Enlightenment, right? Um, and if you're talking about sort of examples rather than philosophy, the, the idea, for example, that Mozart in his Masonic Lodge in, in Vienna, uh, one of his friends was uh, Solomon, who was uh, um, brought over as a slave from Africa and became a very respected member of the Masonic Lodge, a tutor, etc., etc. And you know that corny idea of the the Masons of a brotherhood of man, all that kind of thing. I've always loved that idea that uh, we are our reason. We, we best express our humanity with our reason and our freedom. And anything that limits those things, I think, sells us really short. And with reason and freedom, we can talk to whoever as equals. And arguments are then settled by reason and not by force uh, and not by appeals to the tribe or to authority or to custom necessarily. You know, it's reason. Now, I know that that's not good enough because reason is quite fallible and reason we're all so prone to fashion and you know how often do we really understand our own motivations quite often or how often do we let our motivations actually pervert our reasoning so that what's in our self-interest is actually uh, translated in our own minds as into everyone else's interest too. I accept all that uh, and that's where my conservative side comes in. But that's why, Simon, you know, I'm rather worried about where we are now and I probably find myself too often now for my own comfort in being against because I see so many challenges mm. to this ideal, including your introduction to the start where you're paying tribute to some of the people here on the basis of who their ancestors, some of their ancestors were. That's not my ideal. For me, everyone here is equally worthy of respect whether they were in Australia for five minutes or whether their ancestors were here for 50,000 years, uh, I don't care. But uh, do you think that it's... Um... <laughs> so, as I explained a bit, you probably heard, for me it's a quite a personal thing too, based on an actual relationship that goes back to the time when I was... You know, it's 40 years ago. So, I'm, I, when I'm talking about that, this is not just something I'm saying for form, it's actually something which I believe in. But Sure, but I, I but believe it too. I have, uh, I have very good friends who are Aborigines, who've got Aboriginal ancestry too, but... Um, I, I deal with them as individuals. Warren Mundine I call the great Australian, but it's nothing to me who his, his parents were. I judge Warren by Warren, you know, and I don't need to pay respects to his ancestors any more than I do to uh, that gentleman over there or, or this lady over here. That's, it's what's their ancestors to me. It's who you present as yourself. And surely no one can come and say to me, uh, look, you, you should respect me more because one of my ancestors was this race or one of my ancestors was a baron or one of my ancestors was particularly rich or particularly good or anything. You could be a complete louse and I don't care. It's, it's who you are, not who your ancestors were. And I think once we start pulling rank like that, we start seeing ourselves as members of a tribe when I think we really should be seeing ourselves fundamentally as individuals and responsible with our own deeds, with our own deeds of establishing whether or not we are worthy of someone's uh, honour and respect and all that. It's your own deeds. Don't try to pull rank. So is that what lies behind uh, some of your ideas about um, Indigenous people and, uh, for example, the campaign for recognition and other... Yes, very much so. Well, when you say Indigenous people, I mean people are people. 
Right. Right? And I don't believe in categorising. I mean, how many of the people here say that their fundamental defining characteristic is that they're Asian or Caucasian or Irish or whatever? You are who you are, each as individuals. Well, but we do also see people who celebrate their distinct historical background. I mean, St Patrick's Day, it's full of people wearing, you know, Irish colours and marching through the streets and sure. occasionally sculling a Guinness and things like that. I mean, and that, that doesn't seem to cause too much concern in any part of the community. I mean, I don't know whether you... I mean, maybe to you it does, that they should well, do so. Well, no, look, you know, nothing is all one or all the other. And to be honest there, you know, you go to my house and you'll see a very battered pair of clogs by the door, right? And I enjoy it. I mean, even though clogs are bloody hard to walk in. I mean, well, you know, you who, wear who wears wooden shoes, really? Do you? Now and then I do, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and you, you wouldn't really eat Dutch food unless you were forced to if you had any brains. <laughs> so, sorry to all the Dutch in the audience. I just don't apologize. No, but it's true. There's a reason. I, tell, I swear to God, there's a reason that there's... You know, Melbourne, I come from Melbourne. And we have, we have Nepalese restaurant down the street from where we live. There's, a, um, a, I think, it's a Sudanese re uh, restaurant in uh, Chapel Street. Uh, you can eat just about from any cuisine in the world. Melbourne is just fantastic that way, but you will not find a single Dutch restaurant. <laughs> and there's a reason. Yep. <laughs> I ate it as, my, as a child, I know. <laughs> Put it all down to so, that. No, but what I was going to say but, is that, you know, I agree. We're all individuals. Uh, I'm not, you know, but we're all individuals. And yet we do seek collective identities. And that is in part because we're social animals and we need social organisation. Uh, that's true. We need sometimes to be reminded of what binds us as a community as well as the fact that we're individuals. I accept that. And that's and, a necessary and, 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 thing. And sometimes too... Um, when people have been through trauma, mm -hmm. um, historical trauma, it's the ability to find the common sense of identity that allows them to hold together too. It's not... You're doing it again in the victimology thing, which I think is just so poisoning our debate. Look, I mentioned Warren Mundine. He was a national president of the Labor Party. I, I tell you what, that's a position no one will ever make me a member, right? Yeah, he is not a victim, right? He is right. not a victim unless you start looking in people's past and you start judging them by their ancestry. Not, you could be not, just not, a great victim. Not just, not just about victims. I'm, I'm thinking about even people who don't claim that they're a victim, but they find some comfort in the collective sense of belonging to something larger and greater than themselves. That's true. And, and some, sometimes that. it's been in the form of belonging to a church or belonging mm -hmm. to a, a football club. Um, some people do it by having a political affiliation and they say, yes, I am a distinct individual, but I also have a sense of being something more than that by affirming my identity in relation to others. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply victimhood, but it does imply an ability to say, I'm not just the isolated radical individual, but something more. No, that's true, but you phrased it as a victim. You said great trauma. That For some people, a trauma may not actually be part of their lived existence, right? But you posit it as part of, if, if you're that particular ethnic group, then trauma is your, your shtick. And therefore, you know, we are seeing this, this sort of victim industry, which I think is just so toxic and so limiting it's no good. And, all right, yeah, we want to be part of collectives that are bigger than ourselves, and I think some of them are actually very important. I really do think that. It teaches you a sense of humility, for one. Um, and, and I agree with that. But we're like Venn diagrams, really. Yeah. There are multiple identities we can choose, and they're actually quite fluid. We and, could choose... And we are simultaneously many things. We're fathers, sons, Precisely. brothers. I accept all that, yeah. Um, so this notion then which lies at the core about the intrinsic dignity of the individual person, mm. that you should be judged for who you are in and of yourself at that point rather than what historical construction that there is around your identity. That leads you then to question any kind of claim that people make based on a corporate identity, that's right. Is that a fair summary of the situation? What do you mean a corporate identity? Well, belonging to a group. To a group. Yeah, where they say, look, you know, I, I ought to be considered in such and such a way because I belong to this group with this history or whatever. You would say, 
In all circumstances, that's not No, not, not all circumstances. I mean, um, I, like I say, it's not 100% white. Nothing's always black and white like we tend to have in these very polarised debates. Um, it, it is more complicated than that because for a society to function, for instance, we all need to feel a sense of responsibility for the members of it and also a sense of responsibility for the health of that particular organism, that society that you're part of. So, we're Australians, for instance. Uh, I think it's incumbent on us all to help each other, uh, a social security system, etc. That's part of a corporate identity, right. right? And where other people are making claims on you as a fellow Australian. And these, these include people who are complete strangers to you. So you pay your taxes, you donate to charity, uh, you do all that kind of stuff. Or you write pieces for the newspaper, you know, to wagging the finger at people. This is all part of it, right? So, no, there are claims that people make and claims that I also honour as part of a, a corporate existence, except, of course, um, it depends how far you push that. Well, that's fine then. So you accept some... And let's, let's agree that it's good not to go with black or white here, that we, hmm. that we accept it's a nuanced position. There are some things like national identity, which you see that's a useful and appropriate thing. Where then do you say... Well, national identity... Identity well, means you're positing, like... Well, belonging, in the terms that you were putting it, let's mm. accept that, that you, as an Australian citizen, has certain obligations mm. and it's appropriate to look to other citizens and help them and things of that kind. So where do you think that form of thinking ends and then starts to enter some of the dangerous territory? So how, how does one demark, make a point of demarcation? Does one or... Of course, but look, it's hard to define it, isn't it? Because the, the salience of these things is often determined by circumstances. Like, how would you define how much your community can ask for from you right now is rather different to what it could have asked from you in 1942. In 1942, it could have asked for you, look, I want you to go out there and start killing people to save the rest of us. It's a bit hard to ask that in the people now. I want you to uh, censor yourselves in case the enemy understands. That's one thing you can ask maybe in war, but not now. Mm. So it's never, it's always, it's an eternal battle, you know, between liberty and, and the bonds of, you know, sort of tyranny or between a collective identity and the individual. And people who are absolutist about that, uh, whichever side of the debate they are, they're the ones you've got to freak out about. There does seem to be quite a lot of absolutism coming back into the world at the moment. Mm. Uh, I see people who are attracted to either ends of a totalitarian spectrum, whether it's left or right or it's defined in religious terms or political. I think, my own view, um, struggling to find some point of certainty um, in a complex world. Do you see that too in those terms? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do. And, and certainty really is our enemy. You know, that's one of the catch cries, a modern catch cry, uh, you know, that uh, uh, you're a denier, you know. That, that's, where's that? that's like from the Salem witch hunt, you know, that's in the climate catastrophist kind of thing. You're a denier, you know. Where does that come from? You know, and I think we should always be open to ideas being challenged because so many ideas, so many certainties have been challenged and correctly, as we find out later. And, you know, isn't there a great pleasure in making ideas provisional on the basis of the best information you have, but provisional always? But you also have to be pragmatic. I mean, there are some decisions that we make when we go on aeroplanes about, hmm. you know, how things have happened in the past with laws of induction and things like that. And we say, as a matter of prudence, we're going to fly it in a way that's safe. And so it yeah. would be in issues of public policy. There are some matters of prudence. I think you invoked during the time of war certain restrictions on liberty, restrictions in terms of the ability of what you can say and do as a matter of prudence. Surely some of the big issues, I'm thinking climate change is obviously one of the issues where there's been contestability. As a matter of prudence, there you'd go with the best evidence, wouldn't you? Without it having to be of course put you into do. some kind of orthodoxy. No, no, but, but of course you do. But, you, but always you, uh, you, you exercise reason in this. And what I cannot stand, and it's like red rag to a bull, is people who say, 
the science is finished, it's settled. The science is settled. In what other field of human endeavour have you seen the science is settled? Oh, sorry, Mr. Einstein, you're too late. The science is settled. I mean, what is this? You know, what kind of moron says that? So there were two, two legs which I saw in your, your positive account of, of, of your ideas. One I referred to was this kind of notion of an intrinsic dignity to all people mm. as individuals. The other one was the one that we've just been touching on a little bit around liberty and the idea that, um, as you expressed it, freedom is something to be, I think you didn't use the word cherished, but to be uh, highly valued and ought to be defended to the greatest extent possible in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So today, um, when you look, do you consider ourselves living in a time where freedom is growing? No. Limiting? And, and what do you make of where, what's driving the phenomenon that you see? You know, it's, it, it's always a, an easy way to caricature, caricature someone to say, oh, look, you know, conservatives always are saying, you know, it's the end of civilizations. when I go in the hell in a handbasket. It's absolutely true. If you go through the last few centuries, you will always find people saying, oh, it's all over. We're in, you know, we're in decline, road to ruin, and we keep progressing by most measures. And yet, while that is absolutely true, and while you've got to beware the Cassandra syndrome, absolutely true, it's also true that great civilizations have in fact disappeared or had mm. metacatastrophe. You know, there was once a time, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 150, that Germany was rated as one of the most uh, enlightened, um, um, civilised nations on earth. And then what? There once was a time when Austria was blooming with culture, blooming with culture. Mozart, uh, uh, Haydn, Mahler, and the whole thing, Richard Strauss, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then look, you know, the Anschluss, World War II. So there have been times when great civilizations have, in fact, gone to the pack. And as someone once said, you know, every, every great idea starts with a philosopher dreaming in his or her study, uh, and some of those ideas are very bad ideas. And I think it's incumbent on us to recognize that nothing, there is no progress that is ever upward into the sunny uplift in the uplands. It's always to be fought for. There are always challenges. And a society that does not recognise the challenges when they come and does not fight those challenges when they come is bound for decline. And right now, I fear the challenges are there. I'm not saying, therefore, we're going to fall, but the challenges are profound and I don't see enough people recognising them, let alone fighting them. And they come from uh, challenges to our freedom to speak, challenges to our freedom to exercise reason and debate, challenges to the sense of us being individuals, not members of a tribe. Uh, the new racism that's now coming, I find profoundly just frightening. Un just unpack that. The new, what is this new racism? This desire to see ourselves fundamentally not as individuals, but as members of some sort of race, tribe, whatever. Uh, so that we are now to deem ourselves as types, members of a type, rather than as individuals. Right, okay, that, which is what we were talking about before. Yes. Um, and what do you think then is the duty of a citizen in the face of these things? I mean, to, to resist. And would you, would you have any boundaries then? Let's just take something around of free course. speech. So, just shape out what you think should be the reasonable boundaries for for th free speech. Well, I think they should be wound back way, way, way. The, the, the boundaries... Whether it's, whether it's the Racial Discrimination Act, uh, uh, you know, junking some, a lot of that, uh, but even the defamation laws are absolutely absurd. Defamation laws far too often are a way for the rich to uh, shut up the not-so-rich, right? Or the legally connected mm. who can write their own little checks and for you know do, conduct their own uh, legal cases to silence everyone else. I think that's just appalling, really appalling. And I, look, I know, and I say this as someone who's got a, a, a pretty good reputation for defending Israel, um, one of the rare ones in uh, the media at the moment. 
Uh, and I'd say even Holocaust denial, I would not ban. Even okay. Holocaust, because if you can't, if you can't prove a Holocaust denier to be wrong and evil, and only shut them up by the law, then something is seriously wrong with your society. And have you debated, You've got to have faith in Have you debated speech. that with people from the Jewish community? Yes, of course. Oh, 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 I've, I've got tremendously, a lot of good friends in the Jewish community. And, and so has, has they been able to say anything to you to question whether or not that should be allowed? Of course, look, we have debates, I have regular debates about it. I had a debate even with, um, uh, when the, uh, someone in the Jewish community was at Ajak or something, they brought out uh, one of uh, Richard Wagner's, um, I think his great-grandson or great-great-grandson, uh, who was very much, you know, my, Richard Wagner was this anti-Semite, and he was, mm. um, and we should not allow this Holocaust denial, etc., etc. I think he was ticked off the wasn't a member, welcomed into the bosom of the Bayreuth family, right. and he was exercising his peak this way. But uh, I've had that debate even with him. No, you've, you've just, you've got to fight bad speech with good speech. So allow, allow it to be expressed in the full light of day, allow people I wouldn't to challenge allow, it. Well, allow it to be expressed in the full light of day. I mean, the other day I got criticised as being a hypocrite. People didn't get it. I had on my uh, TV show, uh, one of the blokes that went to the, um, the church, where was it? Gosford, or was it? I can't even remember now. Oh, Father Rod the, the, the fellow and, and, and dressed as Muslims yes. and yeah, disrupted the yes. church service. And yeah. one thing that really gives me the pip with the ABC, it's long... I, we'll get, we'll get on to that, that in a moment. Which I... <laughs> no, that's... Because this is a whole subject. This, uh, I'm going to start now because I won't be finished by the end of this <laughs> session. But, but the ABC, what really gives me the pip about them is that you can have people... Uh, creating a, a great nuisance to someone else. Right, uh, today I, I read, for instance, uh, people are picketing, stopping people from going in Wilson car parks in Melbourne as a protest of what Wilson's doing, uh, that they're running. Well, they've just announced they're pulling out. Yeah, well, that's because they're being badgered into that kind of stuff. But, you know, so you, they're inconveniencing other people. Now, the traditional ABC thing was, oh, great, this is a great cause. Come on and explain to us why you're inconveniencing the great people. T tell us about your great cause. Here's a microphone, 10 minutes uninterrupted. And I think that's wrong. That's rewarding people for doing antisocial things to other people by giving them a platform. So I had this guy who, who terrorised people in uh, this church, Anglican church, and I said to him, you're not... I'm not going to have you on my show spruiking your cause. The only issue under discussion here, from my point of view, is why you think this, this totalitarian thing, that you can go and scare other people uh, just to get a, a message across. That is wrong. And I, I, I would not allow the interview to continue where he went into... Oh, oh, people Muslims said that terrible. was against free speech. You but it's it. not. Is that what they said, though? That, that is what they yeah, said. Right. It's not. He's entitled to speak wherever he likes. I'm not going to sue him. I'm not going to sue Tim Sopomsani onto him. I'm not going to do anything like that. He can speak on his TV platform if he gets one, but not on mine. I have responsibility to use my microphone. I'm going to give it only to people that I think the debate will be furthered by. Yeah. That is not a free speech issue. He can speak but I have a right not to let him you speak see. in my presence uh, on my TV show. He can speak somewhere else. What, what do you think of the people who were um, targeting the Wilson parking station? I mean, do you admire them for doing that? No. For expressing their views? No. You can express your views by standing outside the Wilson car park with your sign so that anyone coming in to use it, racing in because they've got a wedding anniversary to get to and they're just a bit late, and this is the one car park spot they got, they can read the sign and then still keep going and make their own choice. No, why are you standing in front of them and saying, go and park somewhere else? So it's the, Who dis are it's you? the disruption, Who are you to say not the expression that you're Absolutely. Why, why in Absolutely. Why in Australia is it now... Have, have, why are we habituated to the idea that people can protest, and there's like 100 people or 200 people, whatever, they can stand in your street when you're trying to get to pick up your child at school or you're trying to get to work or you're just trying to get home, you had a rotten day, you're trying to get home or you need to go and feed the puppies at home and you're trying to use the street and there are 50, 100 people having a protest right in the middle of the street. 
Who gave them the right to do that? I mean, what is that? What kind of bullies choose that? Why don't they decide to stand by the side of the road with this sign as you read it as you go by, you're equally educated, but you're not as pissed off? <laughs> let, let, let's, let's get back to the ABC. Some people might consider one of your dangerous ideas. I think you'd be keen to see it not publicly funded, is that right? I like the idea of the ABC. Oh. Yeah, spontaneous applause. <laughs> I, I grew up with the ABC in the bush, and uh, for me, it was great. That's how I got into uh, opera, for example, as a boy. Uh, uh, way out in the bush, no, no one came past us with anything grander than a uh, ukulele uh, out there. That was great, you know. Um, but I would like to see the ABC reform. Now, I've said that for 20 years. I would like it to be a place where all points of view are expressed with equal weight. But an organisation that by law must, that's by law, it's not a whim, must in exchange for our $1 billion a year be impartial is clearly not. Is clearly not. It doesn't have one single conservative hosting a mainstream current affairs show, not one, in a country where, what is it, five of the last seven elections it's voted Tony Abbott or, or, or uh, Malcolm Turnbull or, or, uh, or John Howard or more, it's lots of elections. How can it be that the ABC, by law, meant to be impartial, is so far to the left? How can that be? So my point is this, if it cannot be reformed, and the evidence suggests that to cause for reform it's giving the two fingers, if it cannot be reformed, then yes, withdraw the public subsidy. And if it could, if it could get achieved, the yeah, kind you see of that balance. boo. Uh, look, you say that boo, but how, am I allowed on the ABC to boo it? And it's my broadcaster. You know, you're free to do the booing here, and that's great. You, you know, you 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 boo away on your own there. That's great. <laughs> but it was a very moderate boo. Is, I have it to was say. a moderate <laughs> boo, but that one. <laughs> It was a moderate boo, but, uh, but you did your best and I admire the courage. <laughs> it's the courage I showed every week when I tuned, uh, turned up to Insiders as the sole conservative. I know exactly how you feel. You and Jared Henderson. <laughs> we did, never on the same show, right? right? Never on the same show. Uh, is there a Jared Henderson or am I Jared Henderson? No, no but the thing is... The ABC should let that, that diversity bloom, and it doesn't. And you tell me, how can you justify that? Well, I was going to ask you, let's suppose it did have that you diversity. You can't justify it. I'm not going to even try diversity. No. No, no, because I, I agree that there should be diversity. But why isn't there? I don't know why there isn't. But, I, but also, I don't, also, I don't know what are the political views of the journalists who appear. I... Well, that's the rest of the... Okay. All right. That's the rest of the session taken care of. Shall I take it from here? Well, you're you don't you're... know? Well, I've never, I haven't ever talked to them about All right, their let's, politics. Let's start with Philip Adams. You don't know Philip oh, Adams? Of course I do. Philip Adams. All right. right, there, right? All right. We'll, we'll you don't know where Kerry O'Brien's views are? Well, he's not on the ABC anymore. I knew what they were. You're being a bit shifty no, here. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Let, let's wait one Fran second. Kelly. You don't know Fran Kelly's views? No, I views. don't. And I don't know... She said... Let me quote. I, I'm an activist. Where is she on same-sex marriage? You're an activist. Where is she on same-sex marriage? You don't know? I, I believe... Yes, I do know where she is on that topic. Oh, you know that. You know where she's on global warming? No. Well, she's, she's actually a global warmist. You don't know where she is on boat people? I don't actually know her view. No. Uh, do you actually listen to Frank Kelly? I do. <laughs> I do. But also, if you talk to me, do I know what... Annabelle Crabbe's politics are. Well, I've got a pretty good idea. Well, probably, she's, she's probably a mate of yours and you know, but I mean, I, honestly, I, I couldn't say with any certainty that I know exactly where they are. But, Simon, but, can I help but, you with the tuning on your, yeah, the yeah. dial of your ABC? Yeah. I think there's something wrong with the reception so the lack that you're of, the la Anyway, the lack of my political <laughs> antenna isn't so much the issue. I agree with the principle that it ought to be a place which is diverse, but I thought that you'd suggested at some point that it's not just that it's not balanced, but that it's too big for a democracy. I think that too, yes. So why, why do you think that? Is it that well, it's drowning it, out voices or...? Well, in, in two ways. One is because of the bias. Um, for that to be so overwhelming is, of course, of itself, obviously. That's bad for democracy, particularly when you've got alternative voices. Assuming that that was solved, but you still have the same scale and size of it. But even then... It's still, I think, it's, it's, it's less dangerous, but still the size of it. I mean, 
you have a look. It, it, it seems strange to me in one sense that as a conservative, and I, I'm more than conservative, but just say, as a conservative, that I'm a fierce critic of the ABC being too big when it really should be people on the left that are complaining. Because which are the organisations whose lunch it's eating? It's actually selling or giving away free in the market the, exactly the kind of programming to exactly the same audience that Fairfax is trying to sell to. And we already see Greg Highwood, the head of Fairfax, saying, you know, the soon, this is the extent of the, the problems they may not be able to print their Monday to Friday editions of the Age in Melbourne and the City Morning Herald here and because they're running out of money. They're running out of money. And so in that circumstance, explain to me how we as taxpayers are giving the ABC funding in order to print online, effectively, a newspaper which is in direct competition to the Age and City Morning Herald. How does that work? That can't be right. And you saw Polfax, or whatever it was called, Poly, uh, Polfax, Polyfax, uh, that thing a former uh, Sydney Morning Herald editors did to, um, to do checking of facts before the election before last. Yeah. And that was driven out of business because what did the ABC do? Fact-checking. Yeah. Fact-checking uh, centre. Yeah. And then it's now been scrapped now that the private sector version was run out of town. That cannot be right, Simon. That cannot be right. Now, before we go to the audience, uh, do you feel that some cultures in the world are... And you talked about the Enlightenment, which is a distinctively, I think it's fair to say, Western uh, cultural artefact. Do you think there are some cultures that are better for the world that we want to live in than others? But why did you give it a geographic thing, Western? Uh, because I'm just looking at the, the origin of the Enlightenment out of Western Europe. Is it? Yeah, well... Originally, it started in a place that's absolutely correct, although you might say that the origins of uh, that Enlightenment go way, way back to the, yeah. the, the, the Near East, in part. In, in part, this well, is Greece and there's, uh, there's Greece and Israel. There's a, there's a translation through Arab Spain and all the rest. Well, that's just the conduit. That was the pipe. But the point is, the point with this is um, the geographic concept I think is a misnomer and it's, an awa it's a, a way to, to relativise it to say it's just culturally specific to that area. I lived in Hong Kong for a while. I mean, the Enlightenment is, uh, is starting to bloom there. I mean, you have a look there right now. Oh, well, for a while. Ethnic China, we were told for a long time this idea of the Enlightenment that, you know, our freedom and our reason are really the way we best express our humanity. We would posit it, oh, well, there's the Confucian model where that's against democracy, which is the ultimate expression of what I'm talking about. We, you know, that's much better. The Chinese, they don't, they're not suited to democracy. And then, of course, uh, we got Taiwan. And now we're getting Hong Kong, where you're getting in the, the elections coming up, a new generation of people that are saying, and the, the, the results are quite extraordinary, what proportion of them are now thinking that maybe Hong Kong should be independent from mainland China. Mm. And why do they do that? They're saying it because freedom counts for them. Freedom counts. And to just say, oh, it's a Western thing or it's a European thing or it's a white thing, I think sells so many people short. Whatever it is in terms of its origins, historically, or you, you still want to back that ideal as being superior to other alternatives in the yes. world at that? You know, there's two ways to defend it, of course. One is to try to mount the argument, look, I, I think freedom is better than, than tyranny. I don't know that we had to debate that anymore, but apparently we do, no. you know? It's just extraordinary that these times do it. And Nathan Sharansky, you know, why democracy matters, he has to write that now? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've got yeah. to think about that. It's just ludicrous. So, but that is one thing. But there's another way to argue it, and that's simply, it's mine. Just on that that is our society. I'm comfortable with it. You may say that tyranny is better for your society. Well, you go and have your tyranny, but leave me to, because to what is us, it, ours? It's another topic, but there is a debate which is going around as to whether or not democracy does have the resources to address the problems in the world. And there are people who are seriously arguing for more tyrannical, more... Uh, it's there. I mean, it's a, it's a live argument in plenty of societies. That's a moment. pretty rotten argument. What, so your argument is democracy... I'm not making, I'm just saying... No, no, no. Let me just take it. Democracy doesn't have the resources 
to solve the rest of the world's problems. Well, I tell you what, no, why is the rest problems. of the world looking for democracy to solve? Because clearly then they can't even solve their own problems, so they're looking for us to the solution. So I would say if democracy is being looked to to supply the wants of the non-democratic, then maybe there is something wrong with the non-democratic to start with. Let's try to open to questions. Anybody want to come and... It's a rare opportunity where instead of Andrew putting questions, you get to put them to him. So, everybody like to do that? I'd ask you to ask a question, not to make a comment. It's really not here to be a, a soapbox for other people. We'll start down there. If you could say your name, mm -hmm. and we've got about, only about 12 minutes for this, so short questions with your name, and then Andrew will give a pity response. Okay. Yep. So, my name's Kath, and um, Simon has uh, brought into the conversation with Andrew big discussion about pushing boundaries. And I'm interested in Andrew's position on having your own boundaries pushed. So at what point would you say to someone that's enough, you've got to stop, and at what point would you say something like defamation becomes an appropriate response? Mm -hmm. It's funny, my wife was talking about me pushing that boundary <laughs> only this, only this uh, afternoon at the lunch. She was dreaming of all the swimming pools we could have owned if only I wasn't so purist about it. <laughs> Look, you know, I've probably been regularly defamed and it's a point of principle in part that I say, I've got to live by what I say, free speech, and hope that in time my reputation... Look, there's parts of my reputation will never be recovered, I know that, so I'm not stupid about it. But, you know, I just hope that in time I won't be seen for quite the ogre that I'm painted. But uh, it's, it's been hard. There have been times I think I should sue. But I tell you what, there's another reason I don't, and that is, uh, to be honest, I don't think I've got enough friends in the courts that I could trust them to make the right call. <laughs> uh, let's go over to microphone two. Um, hi, Andrew. Um, you mentioned you took, took opposition to when Simon um, was talking about the victim. And you also, obviously, at the start, talked about to the opposition, to your welcome to country. I was wondering if you could sort of evaluate on what we lose as a society for sort of having more social awareness. You mentioned it being toxic. What is the cost to society for having more social awareness? But I'm very socially aware. I think I, I'm trying to spread my social awareness more. If more people shared my social awareness, I'm sure we'd all be better off. <laughs> I want you to be more aware of the social policies that other people might be pushing. Awareness is very good. I'm looking at the consequences. Are you aware of the consequences? Could you please elaborate further on the consequences? Well, the what consequences are, look, you know, um, there are consequences. Take the welcome, for country, uh, welcome to country. I think there's something deeply alienating about telling people that it's not really their country, that before you go on the, your, this particular country, you have to acknowledge someone else. You have to be welcomed onto it. And of course, if someone's welcoming you, it's up to them to say, at some stage, you're not welcome either, right? That's the notion. That's the whole concept. And it was interesting. I went to, to do a documentary with the ABC on uh, Indigenous recognition with Linda Burney, and it's going to be screened... Oh, yeah, I remember when you were doing that. ..a few weeks. In a few, yeah, I met you doing yeah, that. Yeah. In a few weeks' time, it's going to be on the ABC. And we're seeing... I've said from the start, this... Once you see, uh, allow the principle to be breached, that we're all one, one people, one law, one country, and you do this sort of thing, it has consequences and an inevitability, a logical inevitability. And I'm sitting there in the filming of this uh, thing, talking to someone who was the foreign minister of a new Aboriginal nation around Cairns. You may laugh, but there are about nine such groups now that claim themselves to be independent countries. There are now, there's now a push, Arnhem Land, to make that autonomous. And inevitably that goes that way. So we consider ourselves different races in different states. And I don't know that that actually advances us at all. At all. It cheapens us and it sets us at war with each other. It defines us by our, our race, not by who we are. And those sorts of battles are usually settled in the end, by force, not by reason. You can't appeal to someone's reason with these things. This is blood against blood, and I just think this is terrible. Okay. This is terrible. Thank you. Microphone one. Oh, good day. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. My name's Andrew. Um, 
I'm just wondering, if we go back to the French Revolution, we think about the three fundamental pr uh, principles of that, the equality, fraternity, uh, equality... And uh, liberty. Fraternity and liberty. Um, if we haven't, as a society, sort of forgotten about fraternity, about the mutual respect of each other to pursue our own interests, and the second part of that, is it time that we got back to basics, uh, you know, as a libertarian, to actually discuss a bit what freedom is in society and what it means and what it gives us? Have we, have we taken that for granted at the point where we've forgotten what it is? I think we've, we've become so fearful of one freedom, speech, that it's really scary. Don't forget, once you don't have free speech, you can't defend your other freedoms. You have no voice. They can take the rest away. Free speech, it's got to be central. Absolutely has to be central. And I do think we've forgotten that. But it's interesting, you raised the French Revolution, you say this is one of the things we learn from the French Revolution. I don't learn that from the French Revolution. Mm. What I learned from the French Revolution, there are people talking about liberty, egality, fraternity. In the name of that, they yeah. perpetuated a revolution that gave them the exact opposite of all three. Yeah, that's to right. Totalitarianism. Exact right. opposite of all three. And that's isn't, isn't, the, isn't that the irony of people who it's claim not the to, irony. To, to, to advance freedom? Isn't ultimately there? Is that quick? Is it's taken away? Just a quick, we'll have to go to the next one, but just a quick answer to that. Is it an irony? It's not an irony. It's a, it's a pattern. That's mm. the scary thing. You have a look at the other revolutions, the Chinese one, the Russian one, the Cambodian one. The pattern is exactly the same. And I think you have to, you have to learn that, that it's not an irony, it's almost like an inevitability. Okay. You know, that, what was it that uh, uh, Bertrand Russell said, you know, so much that his idealism passes for idealism is in fact a disguised hatred or disguised love of power. That's what you've got to watch out for. Um, we'll go across to the microphone too. We've only got about five minutes in total, yep. Um, I, I see you as a, a very reasonable person and I, I guess you would <coughs> pride yourself in keeping an open mind on all things. Um, There's a but coming, isn't there? Yeah, well, <laughs> your attitude on climate change is, is well known and, and yet uh, it seems to me there seems to be a, an awful lot more evidence now coming through. I mean, if we don't trust our own... Uh, Bureau of Meteorology, we don't trust our own top scientists in climate. You put all the top scientists from every nation in the world, in the world now agree okay. with it. Okay, the, so I'll take that right. as a kind of a let, comment let, come question, which uh, is... I'm not sure if your attitude is softening at all on this. No, 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 look, no. As a man of reason, is the evidence becoming, starting to convince you? Of what? Of, of human of, of the, that it's actually happening and that uh, humans climate are is happening. Uh, climate is, change is happening. Yes. I've never denied it. So I'm not sure you actually understand my position if that is the, supposedly the gotcha issue. Can I just say, for one, uh, trust the expert. I trust evidence. I trust reason. I don't trust someone who says, trust me, uh, I'm wearing a white coat, or trust me, my ancestors were born somewhere, trust me because I'm a member of a race. I trust evidence, I trust reason. And by your reckoning, I should have trusted the Chief Climate uh, Commissioner of Australia when he told me that even, or he told the world, even the rain that falls will not fill our dams and our river systems. Direct quote, 2007. I didn't trust him then, but and I still don't trust him. Now the Warragamba Dam is, what is it, 98% full? Yeah. I don't trust him. But that's one person okay, and one attitude. But yeah, what but about I, the We're not going to debate this topic Evidence. here. We can't. You can do it. Andrew will be doing some book signing afterwards. And if you want to <laughs> sign, sign and debate, that might be the opportunity. Yes, Mike, this will be the last question. Uh, hi there. Thank you so much, Simon. And first of all, thank you so much for putting this on. This is fantastic and exciting to be able to do not just at the university and online. This is I really like enjoy this. Andrew, thank you so much for your work. You're awesome. We love you. You're brave. <laughs> thank you very You're brave and courageous. Um, but look, it's not about being factional. It's about reason. So, what are your thoughts on how we can practically, uh, logistically, eff effectively um, encourage more young people to be engaged in debate and open-minded debate rather than just being scared into joining one of the two or many political or ideological tribes. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. It offsets the boo, doesn't it? You're glowing now again. Yeah, no, no. Look, thank you for your kind words, but it, it is... Look, one of the things that I've found, and 
I've been scared too, right? I'm scared even to come here. And um, how long have I been used to it? I used to be scared to go to insiders every time because I knew that I was the lone one and there was a lot of fun in trying to prove me wrong. So I had to really bone up to make sure I wouldn't be humiliated on public TV. Um, it is scary. And fear, I think, is what stops so many people from speaking, particularly when there are so many people now that think their morality is best expressed by being perfectly mean to other people, yeah. by screaming abuse at them or bombarding them mm. in social media. And, um, I, you know, I'm not a Christian, but... Um, and I'll, I'll invoke this guy's name, even though he's been anathematised in Australia. George Pell, he wrote... Uh, and I like George. And uh, he wrote a book of sermons with his favourite biblical quotation. It's not mine, but it is his. Be not afraid. And I just think if people were less afraid, and I don't, mean, I don't mean you should lose your sense of shame. When you've done something wrong, you should feel a sense of shame. It is appropriate to feel a sense of shame. And you should be afraid to be shamed by your own conscience. But don't be afraid to speak up. Because one thing I have noticed, um, and like I say, I've... I've copped a fair bit of abuse, that's fine. Uh, well, it's not fine, I don't like it at all, but, you know, here I am. Um, one thing I have noticed that's given me so, such tremendous heart, and you've just demonstrated it here, as have the people kind enough to applaud. You can say something that, you, that with the best will you've tried to make true, that you've tried to express honestly, and it has repeatedly surprised and heartened me that when I've done that, and I've made mistakes, and I've made mistakes, and I know I've been wrong, but when I've done it, more often than not, you will find many more people than you expected mm. were silenced and will say yes and thank you. And so I'll say to you, be not afraid and do speak up. Thank you. <laughs> Look, um... We're going to bring this to an end with a celebration of a commitment to reason rather than righteous indignation. And all, <laughs> because it, it drives me mad, the yelling that goes on now and the fact that people it's don't true. engage. You may not David agree... David Mayer was on this stage only a few minutes ago. Go, and, and, <laughs> you would have got plenty of and, that. And George Pell has spoken <laughs> at the festival. Um, so you may not agree with Andrew's views now. You may not have agreed with them before. Why would you go and say that's a negative tone? Or someone I'm, might be I'm, saying you may well agree or, with I'm, Andrew. Or, or <laughs> I'm working up to the big positive finish. Thanks for stuffing that up. <laughs> I'm sure you've all, whatever you happen to think, been impressed by the sincerity and intelligence that Andrew's brought to this discussion. Please join with me in thanking Andrew Bolt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.